sharing huge space. Look how fast he's going. Polar opposite of the conditions he won in Lords. Rain soaked Lords. They're getting the last step down. The crowd is roaring. He is going to do it. He's going to smash the time. Downhill racer and our expert here today, Andrew Needling. Welcome back, listeners. This is Moving the Needle podcast, and I'm your host, Andrew Needling. In this show, I look to pick apart the minds of top athletes and industry leaders so I can pass that knowledge on to you. Our next guest is Eddie Masters from New Zealand. He is known as one of the most fun and charismatic characters on the circuit. But don't let this fun nature fool you for how hard he works and how focused he is when it comes down to racing. Racing for many years as a privateer, he has now developed into one of the world's best, taking his first World Enduro win last year. We chatted about things like coming back from injuries, his attitude towards life and racing, and the need for a riders' union. Enjoy. Welcome, Eddie. Where are you in the world, and how are you adjusting to these crazy times? Um, well, thanks for having me, Needles. <laughs> um, I'm in New Zealand. I'm holed up at my parents' house in New Plymouth, which is like the town that I grew up in. And um, I've been adjusting all good. New Zealand's it's kind of surreal because, like, we seem to have a pretty good handle on it. So you like, you're not seeing any anything like right in front of you. Like, so it's just like you kind of stay at home. But um, we're allowed to like go out and exercise and stuff. So like, I can go road riding and um, just nothing gnarly. But pretty crazy time, eh? It's like I don't really know. No one really knows anything. It's like unprecedented. So, um, yeah, just take it day by day. How about you? Yeah, same thing. I've embraced it the first three weeks. I think um, I spoke to Brendan about when you have a goal or a timeline, you you can kind of get through it. But when they carry on extending it and you, the unknown comes in, that's that's definitely been the tough part. Yeah, like the first week I was like, uh, I was almost kind of annoyed because I was like, you spend so much time like ramping up towards the start of a season. And then I was just like, because you'd like, like, I couldn't really see how we would go, we're going racing anytime soon. So then you're like, what do I do? And then you start, I started getting real bored and then I like started getting real motivated. So I've just been on this uh, roller coaster. But now things have settled down. I'm just like hanging out, having fun, just kind of waiting it out. It's kind of, Kind of bizarre, though. It's totally bizarre. I mean, it must be so frustrating. You know, what's that mental adjustment when you've put all that work in? I mean, yes, there's bigger issues at play here, but in your life, you've put all that work in to get ready for a season, and it's almost wasted. I mean, you're pretty much forced into yeah. another off-season reset. It's kind of buzzy as well because it really highlights how selfish you are when you're an athlete because, like, um, you're just like, only worried about yourself and how it affects you but um so that's where I was like kind of annoyed because I was like you know especially for me coming off an injury I put like heaps of hard work in to get just to make it to the start of the season so then I was like when the rugs pulled out from underneath you you kind of like a little bit off it but then like you said there's like something bigger at play so you just yeah I can't really change any of it or, or affect the outcome so I'm just not living it really I'm not really worried about it at all well I mean coming into the year you did have a big injury last year so talk to me about how you handled that injury mentally as well as like you were clearly recovered well because you started off pretty much where you left off last year so 
you um, mentioned it. It's kind of like a, a an injury like that with mine because it was like initially they told me it would be maybe a year before I could ride again. And then um, – but I didn't really tell many people that, so I was like, kept that one up my sleeve, um, especially when you're signing contracts and stuff. As um, you do, as you do. Yeah, you know, you've got to keep your cards close to your chest. Um, and then – so I was like – and because and it's my hand, I was like, you know, it's kind of an integral part of what we do. Um, I was like a bit worried that I might not get it back functioning – as as like good as it was so I was a little bit worried but then over time things just started picking up and then I think I naturally heal real quick um so by the time it got around to like January um I was quite confident that I'd be all good to start the season and then once I started riding again um riding was sweet it was like it was mainly like using it day to day that it would get sore, but riding was all good. Whenever I was clo- had a closed fist, like holding the bars, it was sweet. So, um, and then I was stoked to to like be back um, relatively quickly, um, and then started the season pretty strong. So that's why I was a bit gutted when they when the season got cancelled because I was pretty keen to have a red hot crack straight off the bat. But, I mean, they told you you could have maybe been off for a year. Is that – do you think doctors, a lot of them have to be a bit conservative? I mean, did you get a second opinion? No, I didn't because it's like I wasn't really – I didn't really have a – I just had a a goal, an end goal. I didn't really mind about the timeline. So you kind of heal as quick as you can. Um, so I don't really worry about, like, what they say apart from, like, a vague um, – like, I guess they they always project the worst worst case scenario, but then if you if you think positive, you just aim for the best case scenario, and wherever you end up, so you end up. So, um, but initially when they said a year, I was like, well, that's that's pretty heavy. Geez, that's big. Yeah, I mean, even the, like uh, you've done ACLs and other things. That's worst case like six months, which is long, but you yeah. can handle. When you say a year, yeah, that's tough mentally. Well, I was just more worried because it was my hand. You know, it's like, um, yeah, <laughs> it's it's really important. While you're like ACL and stuff, is they've kind of got it all figured out, so they can, you know, you know that it's healing. Whereas like with all the ligament stuff that I damaged and then breaking all these little bones, um, I was I didn't really have any experience or anyone who could tell me what whether it was working or not. So all in all, it was it worked out mint. So I'm stoked, but um, I would have liked to have been racing straight off the bat, not with the uh, COVID-19 debacle in, in the way. No. I mean, yeah, so you come off, big injury, but it seemed like you planned it pretty well because you, you sat out of a downhill event and you didn't get on your downhill bike. You focused on your enduro bike. I mean, it paid off. You you won the first event at, at Crankworks, so you've told us how how excited you were. I mean, that's that's a dream start coming back from injury. Oh, it's just a massive confidence boost, eh? Because, like, um, you have, there's so much doubt, and mountain biking is such a confidence thing. It's like when you're on, you're on. But if there's even that tiny little bit of grey area, um, it can kind of really run run havoc in your in your mind sometimes. So, like, to get over that hurdle straight away without any, you know, without any major hiccups was, like, 
ideal. Couldn't have asked for it. Well, it couldn't have been any better, really. And what do you do when when you know, like, okay, your confidence being hit a bit, and you've put a lot of work in, and the results aren't quite going? Have you have you got something you fall back on, or tell yourself, uh, or a plan to get that confidence back? Because, I mean, your confidence seems to come from demonstrated practice and showing yourself you can do it. So yes, you can go and sit in a corner and say, hey, I'm confident, I'm good, I'm going to win. But we all know a lot of guys deep down, you know in your gut if you're riding well or not. Yeah, I know. It's like uh, there's not many like as I've as I've kind of gone on an upward trajectory in terms of results. It's like only recently have I like even kind of thought about going to races where I could win. Um, but then realistically, like you should go to every race with that mindset. But it's like it takes years and years to build up that confidence to the level where you actually back yourself. Um. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I know, and it's so fickle because it can take years, it can take months, it, it takes a whole career to get to that level, and then it's so yeah. fickle. One crash, one bad result when you felt you had a good run, but you get smoked. I mean, that it's such a tough, tough thing in life and take, sport. It can take, yeah, it can take so long to build, you know, such a steady like line of growth in terms of confidence, but it can drop way below where you started in an instant which is like um but i think as you get a little bit older like not like i'm old or mature or anything <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> likewise but i think you just know like um you know it's just you've been doing it for so long everything when you get back on the bike it's kind of autonomous and you've got that muscle memory and you just remind yourself that like i guess you know what you're doing just you know, there's no point in overthinking it because it's pretty simple when all you've got to do is get from point A to point B as fast as you possibly can. That's all you've got to do. But um, but it takes a lot of confidence. It takes a lot of confidence to like have that approach as well. So who knows? It trips me out sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> it does. I mean, I think doesn't matter how good you are you go through those those patches where things are just not clicking you looked at Aaron Gunn when he changed bikes and it's like he was so good the year before and like what can suddenly change but it it does take time and I think if you have a good preparation and you have a good work ethic I think you can use that to build confidence Uh, me personally I felt that way so I don't know if you feel that if you've put the work in you've recovered as much as you could you've done everything you can do now like you say you've got to get in the gate and go as fast as you can from A to B and then reflect on that and then do it again. Yeah, for sure. Like, I think um, putting in hard work, it, like, um, you just get that, like, natural kind of high and that, and, and you can kind of feed off that where you you know you've prepared well enough. All you've got to go in is go and execute, I guess. Um, but, yeah, so, like, putting in all that all that work is definitely like a confidence boost, but it's also like you, you're doing it because you know you have to do it, like everyone else is doing it now. So you can't no – one, no one's really slacking anymore, I guess. No one really was before, but I think each year it's just people are just sharpening the pencil that much more. Yeah, the sport's definitely changing. But I want to – I mean, your character to racing, if PD's known as the people's champ, I would say you're close to – taking over that throne or at least for the people that are still racing like you're always having fun it looks like you're poking fun with riders you're having fun on social media (laughs) 
I mean, yeah. it's fun to watch. Like, where does that nature come from? Having that much fun, do you have to force it sometimes? Um, it's not forced at all because, like, uh, I really enjoy what we're doing. But I think sometimes people, maybe sometimes I poke fun at it a little bit too much and maybe I can take things a little bit more seriously. But I think on the, on the flip side, some people are taking it way too seriously. And, like, uh, even this, like, COVID-19 has kind of, like, made me reflect and I was like if I didn't go back racing ever again um I wouldn't feel like I missed out on anything because you know you just I think it's so much better if you're just a yes man and you just so it makes it so much more fun rather than like missing out on certain things because I guess it's like people have different approaches but um yeah, I just want to make the most of it while I'm doing it because it's like it is literally the dream for like for me. So um, why not enjoy it? Eh? I think that's great, man. All the youngsters coming up and everyone everyone wants results. And you're not fooling me. Like, yes, you're having fun, but I know deep down how hard you train. I've trained trained alongside you, and I've seen it. So it seems like you're finding a good balance of having fun and then focusing on the racing when it when it calls for it. Yeah, I just try and I just I just try and enjoy every aspect of it. Like, I mean, the only thing that I that I, I ever find like a bit of a chore is going to the gym because it's like something that doesn't really wouldn't naturally appeal to me otherwise. Um, but like, even going to the gym, I like find ways where you know I don't make it doesn't seem so arduous or anything. Um, and I just did that for all my training because then, because it's like downhill so unique. There's like, or downhill and mount, just mountain biking in general. Um, there's like so no perfect way to train. So like you could always cross train or find some way, different way to do it, and um, and always end up at the same same end result, which like means you can just mix it up so much. But I just like riding my bike, so people think I train real hard, but I'm just like out there because it's like good. It's fun, apart from some of the climbing and stuff, but you get to go downhill afterwards. So are you more of a structured guy with a coach, or are you going by feel? Because you've just said, oh, you just ride your bike. I just have, like, kind of, like, I, n- I have nothing written down. I just, apart from, I just have, like, a, multi, you know, I have a few gym programs that I, like, lean on, um, and I don't have anything set out in terms of days. But I just have in my head a certain amount of volume that I like to get through each week, and it might be like, if I was, if I was an example, I'd be like, I'll go for three, maybe two, two and a half, three hour trail rides. I'll do like three or four downhill sessions, and I'll go to the gym three times, and I might ride my hardtail at the jumps. Um, that'd be like a pretty normal week, but it means you're like out on your bike most of the most of most days. Um, but yeah. All of it's like good stuff. So it's like you never really feel like, unless it's like pelting down with rain or something, but then I'll just give it a miss because it's like if I'm not, if I don't want to go and do it, sometimes I just won't go and do it because otherwise I just know it'll be a waste of time because I've got a shit attitude for it. So I'll just put the, have the day off or, yeah. I think flexibility, like for me, works, man. As long as, as long as I'm like getting through that kind of amount of work, I reckon, in my head that I've set out for the week. But nothing's like structured. I've worked with like a few coaches and stuff, so I know the gym stuff pretty well. But um, the rest of that, I just kind of freestyle it myself. 
So, I mean, are there not many days you need to motivate yourself? Because it sounds like you just don't go if it's pissing rain and you can catch it up. And then, I mean, you get to the gym by trying to make it fun. Like, it's got to be days you literally don't feel like doing it and the sun's shining outside. Yeah, so I just don't do it. <laughs> well, there, you have, there you have it. But what about the days like, you know, let's, you know, it's an off season, it's early off season, you're gearing up again and maybe it's been someone's birthday and you had to go have a few drinks and you've had a late <laughs> yeah, night. Yeah, yeah. So like, like if I, if I, um, a lot of the time, like, um, like people always say it like the whole work hard, play hard thing, but it's true. It's like, um, some days we'll just me and Walker and a few of the other boys will go on these huge trail rides and um, you finish at the pub and sometimes you but you end up staring down the bottle of a fair few beers but like you feel like you've earned it so I kind of just always um, always just playing on like a tit for tat strategy where you just like yeah as long as like if I do go if now that I get pretty bad hangovers, I don't really ride the day after, but I always make up for it. Um, as long as you're getting the work done, I don't really have a, see an issue with like letting your hair down or lack of hair from time to time. <laughs> lack of hair. I think, but I mean, it's just different things work for different people and we're, we're not a proponent of going out there and having a million beers. But I think I was similar too. Like, I did enjoy that, so I don't want to have no life. And then I felt so yeah, exactly. guilty. Just... I felt so guilty, like I had to train harder the next time I went, or I pushed through that hangover and I got the work done. I felt better for it anyway. Yeah, like there's been times where I've come home at like four in the morning and gotten on the what bike because I felt so bad that I let myself down. And, no uh, ways. Yeah, yeah, and you just smash out like an interval session on the what bike because when you're hammered, you can go so hard. <laughs> and it's kind yeah. of entertaining but literally um, at four in the morning no yeah, sleep, yeah, just... like directly from the bender yeah yeah well i haven't done that many times but i have been known to get yeah straight on straight still on like three in the morning pump out a sesh <laughs> <laughs> i mean i must i can say whatever i want now because i'm not racing but i've definitely gone to the gym and through a gym session yeah i felt really strong and then when i got home the hangover then kicked in so clearly yeah i'm not i'm not uh proud of it but it, it happened i was pretty strong no 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 yeah 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 i guess it's like your pain thresholds but higher <laughs> <laughs> wow that's yeah, so yeah. good i didn't know i mean that's a, that's good fun dude i mean so all <laughs> that all that work and having a good time it, it paid off you won your first ews last year i mean Talk me through the feelings of that. Like you said, you weren't always going to races thinking you could win or expecting to win. So did you have that feeling leading up to it? It's quite funny. It's quite funny, actually. Like um, that whole race, I was yeah, I was kind of sitting in the top three the whole race. Um, but I was only ever interested in third because I never even put myself in the realm of getting in the top two. So I was just like constantly – watching the stage times of where like Adrian Daly was coming and then um going into like the seventh stage I think I won that stage and then there was only a two minute stage to go and I was leading the race and I was like oh fuck me I'm <laughs> I could actually I, could, I was like I just remember I was pedaling up the hill 
and Bernie and uh, Barney were coming down the chairlift and they were yelling out that I was winning. And then I was like, oh, I just kind of thought to myself, I was like, shit, I could have a, I could get, could actually have a red hot crack at this. And then um, the last stage was only like a two-minute one and I re- could remember it, the whole thing in my head, the stage. So I was just like, man, this is like a downhill run. I've got this. And then I just like smashed it out and uh, won the race. It, and it played out exactly how I kind of visualized it in my head. So I was like, wow, it's that's a trip. So you, um, I mean, yeah, that's great. So you had no expectations or pressure going into that one, which is clearly why you were riding so loose. Did you tighten up on that last one or, or what did it feel like when you were like, I can win it, I know what I need to do. Did you start getting a bit tense or how did it feel before the last stage? Um, no, nah, because I was just like, I kind of felt like uh, with it being like a two-minute stage and me uh, – you know, like still racing downhill, I felt like the ball was kind of in my court for that one. So um, yeah, I just sma- I just smashed a good run, and then I just remember coming into the there's a little step down into like the sprint at the bottom, and I just smashed all my gears into the bottom gear, and then just like pounded the most hand pedal I've ever done, and I was like, boom, that's it. Man, that's awesome to hear. And you, are you yeah, mentioned, yeah. So, yeah? Yeah, yeah, so it was just like that the, the whole race up until that last stage didn't mean anything because it was just a two-man race for the on that last two-minute stage. So I was like, shit, this is just like a downhill race. Just, yeah, it was sweet. Just got him by like half a second. Man, that's so cool. You mentioned racing downhill and kind of using some of that strategy and then now you've won your first EWS. I mean, some people have tried to do both, and some people can, but also it seems to hurt either one or the other. Like Blinky was doing quite well, but it seemed to hurt his downhill a bit. Mod Maze is obviously an outlier. But you seem to be able to race both pretty well. I think you do focus a bit more on EWS, but why do you think you're able to do pretty well at both? Um, just because I'm like consistently riding both bikes. So, like, I use my enduro bike for training and I, like, just lap. I do quite a lot of laps regularly on my downhill bike because, like, it still trips me out how, like, loads of these enduro guys aren't racing downhill or, like, at least got downhill bikes because it's, like, such a – it's, like, the most beneficial way to train for enduro for sure because, like, you're practicing going fast over and over again and you can do it in a way safer environment on a downhill bike than lapping out a bike park on an enduro bike um so like i'm just like always riding the bike so i guess um it's not really an issue for me to like swap chop and change between them oh awesome so you think some guys are like i'm not doing down anymore so i just want to be super comfortable my enduro bike and you're saying well your preparation is it's kind of showed like you can get some big positives from that downhill bike. I like what you said. It is safer riding a downhill bike at quite fast pace through the woods compared to an enduro like, bike. So much, or just in a bike park. Like when I go lap Skyline in Queenstown on my trail bike, I'm going just as fast as my downhill bike, but maybe twenty percent less control. And uh, you're going, you're doing like forty k's an hour average speed. Like it's pretty, it's pretty risky. Um, so when you're on the downhill bike, you're just like, you're always going fast, but in more, contr- more in control so that when you do the switch back to the enduro bike, you can like maintain that high speed. Um, yeah. 
No, I just think it's good. It's like, I, I think um, what better way to practice going fast than on a on a DH rig? <laughs> yeah, I mean, nothing comes close to it. I think these enduro bikes are so amazing, and you have a few days on them, and you're blown away. And then you get back in your down and bike, and you're like, oh, my word. I can go as fast or obviously faster, and you're just so much more in control. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, um, it's so much more enjoyable. Like, I don't I don't particularly enjoy, like, <laughs> riding my trail bike, just getting bucked around. But um, when you're on just, like, the nice sit-up downhill bike, it's just like, oh, this is the dream. And they, and all this riding you do, do you enjoy, like, when you do, I don't know how, what do you call it, a thousand meters in a day or a week or a, a thousand foot? That's a lot of riding. Are you in, are you enjoying that part of it, that workload you put in? Yeah, but, like, where, where we, where, like, all year round, I pretty much get to ride amazing trails. So, like, um, I wouldn't, where I live now, like, I'm, like, with my, at my parents' house, um, like I'm riding around on an XE rig out of choice just to make the trails a bit more exciting and like I'm struggling to get motivated to go riding because I'm so used to riding epic trails, you know, big hills, big descents. So it's like when you've got stuff like that on off every day, it's pretty easy. But um, And that might sound kind of like, I guess, but it's just, yeah, <laughs> we, I guess, yeah, we get to ride mint trails so it makes – it's like yeah, you, you. It's hard to find a reason not to. So, obviously, you've got a very successful brother in the family. Win masters. You seem to be maybe even on factory rides before you. Can you take me back to how life could have been different? Because I don't think a lot of people know that you went to university. Yeah. <laughs> when I when I finished high school, I had two options. I was like, I could get a job. Or I could go to uni, and I was like, I hate working. So um, I went to uni for four years and got a marketing degree. Um, and I had a great time, mate. Eh? I was like, I raced as a junior, and I was pretty good. But I was Blinky and um, another guy like Matt Scholes and a few others, Cam Cole, they like went overseas. And when they came back, they were a lot faster than me. And I never really thought um, that I would – you know, like I just enjoyed riding mountain bikes, but it wasn't, I never had it. It was always a dream of mine to be a professional, but I never really thought it was achievable. But then um, through uni and stuff, Justin Leov moved to my town. So I did a bit, fair bit of riding with him, and then that was when Freecast was on. And then when I finished uni, I got a job trail building so I could save up some quick cash and uh, was able to back myself, pay from, pay my way to go privateering for two years. But I just did that because I wanted to go traveling and ride all these tracks that I've been watching on videos. So I was, I'm, I've just always been, like, such a big super fan. So, like, I was watching all the movie, movies and, like, I just wanted to go and have a, you know, live the, like, privateer lifestyle for a couple of years just for an adventure, really. But then it never stopped. So, and here we are. <laughs> But I mean, you—that's pretty much rags to riches or working class hero. You've you've gone to university, so that takes you into like your early twenties, and then you've gone privateering. So a very late start to to the World Cup career. Yeah, I think I was I think I was twenty twenty two or twenty three when I first raced the World Cup. Yeah, that's really late if you if you compare to the juniors now. 
Talk to talk yeah. to us about some of those uh, early years. You know, that's kind of where the Van Sachs got got formulated. And for the listener at home, these guys were just what well, kind of hand to mouth, bumming it through Europe, riding. I don't know what you guys were eating and drinking, and then racing at the same time. <laughs> yeah, that's sick. It's like it's literally like the dream, regardless of whether you're racing seriously or not. Um, it's like the most fun you can have, just like bumming around Europe in a van with your mates, like living off like 10 euros a day and just like no one can tell, like, you know, you're just like young and you just don't give a shit. So you just like, um, yeah, like wherever you want to go, whatever bike park, you just go there. Yeah. Just set up camp, take over a car park, get drunk, like eat crap food. It's just like the best. Um and then, yeah, so we did, did that for, like, a couple of years. And then we pretty much carried on doing it all the way through Bergamon as well. We just had, like, accommodation. But uh, we still lived the kind of, like, Van Zack way. Um, and we still kind of do it with Pivot. But our, uh, our standard of accommodation just keeps getting a little bit better. <laughs> but, but your attitude's the same. It seems like that's kind of cemented your fun attitude. And does it kind of make you appreciate shit more? Or have you been able to keep that appreciation? Yeah, for sure. Like, um, sometimes, you know, sometimes when you get, like, a new bike, I have to pinch myself because, like, I'm, like, you know, um, you would have dreamed of, like, having such a fresh ride, and now you get, like, them quite regularly. Um, but you just pinch yourself and, like, I looked at, I was looking at a photo the other day and I was, of one of my bikes, and I remembered, like, that bike at that race, going and jumping in the rubbish bins and getting the uh, Yeti's DT Swiss rims out and then pulling the dents out, lacing them up and then racing them that weekend. And it's like shit like that makes you appreciate your mechanic putting on a new set of wheels when you wreck one at Fort William. (laughs) Yeah, you don't have to pay for it or fix it yourself. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man, that's so good. And what about... um... I would I would assume some uh, untold stories would come from the Vanzac era. Why don't we shift some gears and get into some untold stories <laughs> that may, maybe you haven't shared with a lot of us? I'll leave it to you. Well, I can kind of segue off the uh, um, getting because when we when I was looking at that photos when we were in um, Mont Saint Anne in 2012, um, and we. I think we were all like me, Jamie, this other guy, Jamie Lyle, and Tom Matthews flew over to Canada and we like couldn't rent a car because we were under 25. Um, and then we were there for like four weeks, so it was real expensive to rent a car with the, I guess it was just too expensive. So we went on Craigslist and bought a $600 like Mazda car. Um, and then we rung around all these insurance joints and like, figured out a story that we could get insurance. So we ended up paying like 500 bucks to get insurance. And then we were going to drive to Vermont. So we like loaded up this little hatchback. It was like a sedan and drove it across the border. And then it was my first time in Canada. Same with the other boys. And we were just like, yo, road trip. We went and bought like Walmart tents and stuff. And then we get to the border and they take, uh, they send you into this like, um, like building with your passport and they take your car over for an inspection. And then um, when we're like getting, when we're in there getting our passports stamped, um, it comes over on the, 
what's it called, on the like radio, and it's like, get those three guys out back, and these ranger cops come and grab us and like handcuff us and take us out the back, and then um, they're like screaming at us that they've found, and like out of the corner of my eye, I could see the drug dogs going through our car. And uh, we'd only bought the car like three hours before that. And there's these like big dirt American dudes like screaming at us saying how they've found drugs in our car. And um, we're just like freaking out, like sweating in this like search room. And uh, and then we're just trying to like yell to them, like telling them that we just bought the car. And it turns out the guy we'd bought the car off had like had this secret compartment in the glove box where he'd be like chopping up all his weed and he'd like left, all, left these like – not heaps of weed, but like, you know, like a few buds. Um, and then obviously the drug dogs had gone crazy. And so there's these like three little white boys out the back just like trembling. And then one of the renter cops saw that we were from New Zealand. He ended up being like a, he was like into the All Blacks. And then straight away their like tune changed. And then he listened to our story and then they just let us go and they didn't even take the weed out of the glove box. <laughs> no ways. Yeah, yeah, and that was my first time going into America. And now every time I go there, I'm, like, terrified. Dude, that could have been way worse. Like, if I know, they it didn't gone, believe that it story. Gone, it could have gone so bad. Um, if they didn't believe that story, like, I'd never be able to go to America if you have, like, any flag on your passport. Dude, that's horrible. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So then we, like, drove down the road, and it was, like, so kind of a movie – we're like, we didn't say anything for like a whole mile. And then one of us just looked at each other and we're just like, what the fuck just happened? <laughs> so then we like, then we pulled into like Plattsburgh Walmart and uh, we bought like a big thing of WD-40 and we just doused the whole car in WD-40 so that hopefully like the, um, when we hit, went back into Canada, the dogs wouldn't be able to smell it and we threw all the weed away. And then um, when we went back into Canada, we crossed it like this tiny little um, border crossing and, <laughs> and we were like shitting our pants. <laughs> Why did you do WD-40? Do you just make it up on the spot or are you just like, we need something that's going to Oh, because WD-40 is quite a, it's got quite a good aroma. So, but we kind of <laughs> got over it. Yeah, you think? Mm. Oh, it's so and good. then that same that that same trip when we were um when we were driving crossing because we like went we went Canada down to the US for a Vermont race and then back up to Montsegnan and then back down to Wyndham and then back up to Montreal and on the last trip across the border um, we're like approaching the border and then there's like helicopters cops everything and we're like oh fuck this is like. <laughs> Yeah, and then turns out some dude had like robbed a bank, and there was all these uh, cops like walking up and down the um, lanes with shotguns and stuff. And we were just like, man, I've just ever since then I've just thought America is the gnarliest place. Though. Well, I I don't know. I mean, it's good and it's bad. But when I was down in California, if I saw a cop and I was I've got a license, the car's legal, I literally would just tense up. You know, yeah, I know. It's I don't scary. know why. Like, it's like so scary yeah. when there's a cop around because they actually do their job. I mean, yeah. you know, South Africa's kind of a little bit opposite to that. Like, you don't really flinch when you see a cop. Not that I've, you know, and I did nothing wrong in America, but I'm just like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Every time I see them, I'm like, and we'd be like driving, and the sheriff just like in those little towns when you're heading to Wyndham. 
Like you just you just drive through them and you just see the sheriff just like looking at you and you're like, whoa. <laughs> That's so good. I remember I was in um I was going to Whistler, so I was going through into Canada and I got stopped and the cop was like, You need to go to secondary and I was like, Okay and then he goes, Have you ever been arrested? And I was like, No and he goes oh. and then they, they ask these leading questions that make you doubt your whole life existence. Oh so it's like so it's scary. Like, <laughs> yeah, he's like, Are you sure? And now my mind's doing the whole like Oh shucks! It was that time when I was younger at home, and I just got back from overseas and I got put in a cop van. But I never, you know, it wasn't. It was just a misunderstanding, you know. So I'm like mm. doubting this, and I'm like, no. And he goes, let me see your neck, and he looks and he goes, any neck tattoos? And I'm like, no. And he's <laughs> now, just now I'm literally just just start covering up your teardrop yeah, tattoo that got in your eye. So. The long story short is, or short story long, or whichever way around, is they, so then he kept going at me and I was just, I was getting more and more nervous because I'm like, what has he got? Like, what have I done? And then he's like, oh, hang on. Someone else must have like the same name. He's got a, like a record or something. You can go now. I'm like, uh? After all that, <laughs> he's actually made the mistake. It made me like doubt my whole like life history. Um, Sven, Sven will hate me for this one, but I've got another. This, this just a good, good lead into another story. Great. Um, so, 2013, me and uh, I was like finishing my trip in Whistler. Um, me, Dave McMillan, and Walker um, got invited to the street race in Prague, um, and then they were going to pay for our flights and stuff. So I was like, oh, man, that's perfect. I can get free flight to Europe. I can go race two more World Cups and then I can fly home from there because um, I was able to like change my flight. Um, so I was like, yo. So we went to the street race in Prague. Um, and Prague's, I'd never been to like Eastern Europe. It was sick. We were like going out. We went out a few times. Um, and then Walker got third in the race. So he won like 2,000 euros. And we went to this big after party that monster put on and they had like all this monster cash and we were just like, <laughs> cause we'd been dirt bagging it and now we're in hotels and stuff and we're like, this is sick. And so we we're just getting like absolutely written off free of charge. Um, and then we like come outside, uh, the club and I like grabbed a road cone and like chip cone and chucked it over my head. And then the road cone just happened to hit this cop car that was parked there. So then, uh, the cops like come and arrest me and chuck me in the back of the cop car. And then they're like, oh, and I was like apologizing. And was, but they were like, no, nah, it's all good. You just got to go to the cop shop and pay um, fine. So we're like driving to the cop station and the cops are drinking beers. And I'm like, everything's going all good. And we get to the cop station and then I'm just like sitting there. And I was pretty drunk. Um, and then this other like cop come, comes and gets me and takes me outside and puts me in this, like, unmarked van. And then they, like, drive me. And then I'm, like, starting to freak out. And I'm in the back of this, sitting in the back of this blacked-out van. And then they, like, drive me for, like, half an hour to this hospital. But it's, like, a hospital for, like, but it's a prison. And it's, like, super scary place. And they like, no shit. They strip me down, hose me, and put me in this thing. And then uh, lock me in this like host hospital prison room, and this is like all legit. Um, and then I'm just thinking like that they have kidnapped me and they're taking my kidneys and stuff. 
Is that and honestly I'm, what's going through your head? Yeah, because oh. I was like drunk. I was drunk and I was like, but it was the most crazy experience ever because um, I was I was like fully going crazy. I was like jumping from side to side of the room, like trying to figure out what the hell was going on. And I was just launching across from like this like steel bed to this other steel bed. And then and then I just like clicked. It had a, like a light bulb moment. And I was like, they can't I, I I kind of gathered that they couldn't kill me. So I was like, well, if I'm not gonna die, we may as well just get this over and done with. So then I started like just yelling to them, like, hurry up, like, let's do it. I'm ready. <laughs> and I'd like I'd like fully flipped my like way of thinking where now that I wasn't going to die, I was all good. And I'd already like figured it out in my head. I was like, so I'm probably going to get like wake up on the side of the road. And I like hatched this whole plan in my head. How I was not going to go, but I wasn't going to go straight to hospital. I was going to go to the hotel room and walk in and be like, tell the story to the boys and then go to the hospital room. <laughs> no way. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, um, I was like, yeah, let's do it. And I was like rattling the bars and stuff like, and then I, before that I was trying to take, I was trying to figure out like, I was looking out this like cell, I could only see this tree outside and I was just like trying to take as many mental pictures of this tree so if I ever came back I could recognise it. <laughs> I, was go, is, I was going. These are total going, movie stories. Yeah, I know, man. It was insane. And then, um, and there was all these people like yelling and stuff. Um, I've looked it up and I found where I was in Prague and it's a pretty crazy place. Um, and then, uh, this guy came and got me and the organizers of the race had like tracked me down and somehow I'd been like mixed up with someone else and I'd been like sent to this like crazy place where they seem like drunk and well I was drunk but I wasn't meant to go there and I've been like mixed up and then the cops came and got me took me back to the cop shop and then I was all good to go again so like <laughs> almost a mistaken identity I don't know somewhere they'd like somewhere they'd mixed it up and yeah the lady who organized the race had like figured it tracked I don't know rung the cops they knew the cops everyone gets like paid off I guess but um and then they found out where I was and they figured, and then I just got out and I was all good again. Dude, that's so rough, man. <laughs> yeah, it was wow. great. But the craziest thing was like going through this like full, um, just how when I, when I, when I figured out that I wasn't going to die, it was like, sweet, let's go. Well, I spoke to Brendan about that, and he, it, it, it's kind of like you figured out the probable worst case. We might have to have to speak about this in the podcast series. Like you've worked through what's like the worst case. Okay, you probably sh won't die, but they might take a kidney, and you started making peace with that so you could get out of the situation and get on with get on with your thought process. You know, like you were freaking out, and then you paused. Man, that's crazy to do that. It's, yeah, yeah. That was just like a movie scene. Oh man, it fully was like, um, yeah, <laughs> like an echo, yeah. It's like it seems. Oh, it's pretty. It was pretty funny now that I look back on it. But it was pretty traumatic for a <laughs> couple of hours there. Oh, hundred percent. Well, thanks for sharing those, and uh, for the listener at home, we're not 
we're not trying to say that you need to go out and get crazy, but I mean, Eddie, you've been, <laughs> been to university, you like to play hard, work hard, and I think that's key, that comes out, you can only play hard if you're working hard and kind of earning it. So that's why I want to get, you're you, uh, definitely uh, one of the opinion leaders, I think, on the circuit, uh, coming from your education, things like when the racing went from 80 to 60 riders, things like mm. riders' union, have you, have you had to think about things like a riders' union after seeing a friend like yours, Brooke, get, get hurt? We don't have to get into details of that, I wasn't obviously there, but what it makes you think now, like moving forward? Um, I think I think a riders' union would be so much better than the stupid. <laughs> you're gonna get my full opinion here. Then that's like the, the the way that they operate it now, where they have like it's called the commission, and you have, you know, like you've got people who are stakeholders in the series, like you know, big teams and stuff, who are making decisions. And like, how can they be making unbiased decisions if they if they're like heavily invested in the outcome of their decisions? So, like, a writer's union would be perfect because you could have a representative of 60, 50, 40, 30, 20, and 10, you know, number rank numbers, and you could have someone like Petey who would be a pretty neutral party. And uh, if you just did it, like, in a democratic way where you just, like, vote, um, it would be – you could – I think you'd – come out with some pretty good like changes that people would be pretty stoked with. <laughs> no, but I mean, you, you, you're not bashing too much. You're also saying like, what's the fairest way of doing this? And you think, I, I spoke about it on a podcast before on the Hooked podcast. Well, it's just like a prime, a, a prime example, which is like being pretty much relatively swept under the rug is like how for the majority of last season, the top five women were allowed to practice in both A and B practice, whereas numbers six to 20 are only allowed to practice in B practice. And that's like the most unfair advantage because it means the girls can like spread their runs over a longer period of time. They can like ride it. Those top five girls, they can ride like a track that is the closest to the, what they're going to race. Whereas the others are riding like, two hours earlier than that. But then it's like, who's making these calls? And like, not saying anything's against Pom Pom, but if Pom Pom's on the commission and she's like a top five girl and this is on the table, how are you going to vote against it when it's like so beneficial for yourself? Yeah, I mean, it's just, why would you vote against it or make a, and like, make you a would noise never... about it? Yeah, yeah, and it's like... You know, it's like a pretty, <laughs> it's like a soft core version of like insider trading. Yeah, I just think like I was speaking to about it with Couscous and like if there's a table and we're all, we're all invested in this together and the outcome is that everyone benefits. So there's obviously like Red Bull, say UCI, trade teams and industry leaders that sponsor trade teams and then riders. But now it seems just seems like the riders don't have as much of a vote and then if they do it's not an unbiased vote for the general general group of riders no it's like like this we the sport is in such a healthy place right now but the riders you know there's there's things 
that the writers should be able to vote on or to change, you know, whether it's track changes, you know, stuff like that. Um, you know, the writers don't really actually have that louder voice because they've constantly got to go through a third party with their team manager. But then, you know, you've got to have a team manager who is outspoken and stuff to get points across at team managers meeting. And like, not all teams have that. So then you, you don't really have like a fair representation of what's going on in the field. Um, when you've got, you know, some people who are like, also, who are also like, can be very convincing, um, in their arguments, but it's like, Numbers and what happened in the past isn't necessarily like what's happening on that day. And that's what I've found because I've sat in on those team managers meetings and stuff. And uh, sometimes it kind of reminds me of just like a big boys club where everyone's just arguing over like what car they're going to get <laughs> next, next off season and no one actually gives a shit about the race that's happening that weekend. Yeah, I mean, it's like it's going to take a lot of work and and pressure and literally disappointment to try get a few things changed and if you don't like why would the team well, think, want to change think, it you think, know and why does the UCI well, want to change like, it? Um, yeah, I know, I know, I like it's not so much change. It's just it's just that people and I think like people like Bruni and stuff like Bruni's Bruni wants the best for the sport because it you know but then. Um, yeah, it's having people who are passionate about it um, in the – I think everyone is passionate about it, but I think some – some well, everyone is, but I think sometimes it just gets lost lost in translation sometimes um, where there's lots of different things at stake. Um, but, you know, as a writer, and that's why I think – like take my hat off to Bruni or someone like – who or Brooke, um, he's really good for it too. Um, cause as a writer, we just want the best race. Um, like, and it comes down to being that, that self, being selfish again, but it's true. It's like, you just want, you just want the best track and the best conditions for the most fair race that weekend, um, without any of the bullshit. Yeah, I mean, it, it just seems the system is a bit broken. It's not that no one's passionate. It's not that they don't want the best for sport. Even the UCI Red Bull, like, I'm not even knocking any of those. It's just because of the past, it's got to the point that there's now really not a vote or enough of a vote for the riders. And, yes, maybe it's not all about changes. It's about getting a voice. But there are some things that could be better for everyone, and the riders have the best opinion on that. So, yeah, I appreciate your thoughts on yeah, that. I, I think hope, it's I hope like, we can carry on I having the conversations. Yeah, like I think it's pretty – I mean, if you use Brooks' like horrific accident in Mont Saint Anne as a case study, um, it's like why you, – you, you, you can't point fingers, but why wouldn't – why do you need something like that to happen in order to shake up, you know, like how, how did that even happen? with the, like, five hours on the hill and stuff. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, yeah, and it's like um, no one, no one's going to put their hand up, but at the end of the day, like, the UCI didn't really seem to care about Brooks' well-being at all. They only wanted to come out with a squeaky clean image. And, uh, I mean, I hope that it seriously backfired for them because, like, you've got a guy who's given so much to the sport 
and then you know it's it's not very hard for you to ring up. But why, if you're Simon Burney or the president of the UCI mountain bike sector, and you're in Montsenan, like, would it be not that hard to go and just to check on Brooke? I think that's pretty that's pretty pretty shallow from their end. Yeah, it's a it's a whole tough situation, and and Brooks obviously just inspiring us all. And I I mean yes, that's the biggest point. It's sad that something like that had to happen to anyone, you know. Mm. So let's wake up and be you know like it's not like the riders are trying to change it and take money out of anyone's pocket or make no, more, that's like more I drama. I don't, I don't want yeah, you know, I don't want this not, to come across. I don't want it to seem negative at all because like downhill is. In my eyes, it's like it's it's come along in leaps and bounds, and we're in such a good place. But uh, all the only thing I'm kind of like speaking out again for is to have a a better represent representation of the entire field in the decision making process. Because what's to say that someone who qualifies 59th in a, in their first year in elite isn't going to go on to be number one. So, like, their opinion should still count just as much as number one. Uh, absolutely. I haven't taken it as that. And the listeners at home, we, we were kind of, uh, kind of having a conversation to hopefully move forward in a positive manner. And, and like you say, the sport's in a great place. Well, even just, even just some... to get t- people talking about it is good. Yeah, and that's why I want to do it. I'm going to be asking lots of guys and, and maybe – I can get the UCI on here as well because everyone has a side and then there's a lot of red tape and politics and no one wants to make more issues. We've had an incident. We've been speaking about it between us for many years. Okay, well, I've got nothing to gain from it at all if I get involved in this conversation. I'm not racing. Like the, so like, why why would why would you not then trust? Like, What am I trying to achieve? I don't have a hidden agenda. I just want the best for the riders and that'll make a better race and a safer race. And like, uh, just for a little bit of background, really on the on the matter, it's not like, uh, like, where as a rider, um, you arrive at the ra- at the first round of the season, and like, uh, you're not expecting to see like drastic changes, but then sometimes you do, like, but it fit, you never seem like you were ever consulted or no one ever asked you what your opinion on making these changes was. They just get they just get pushed through. So like that's I think that's what I would rather. I don't want to be involved. I don't really want to get involved in the decision making process. But it would be cool if there was um, what's the word I'm looking for? Yeah, if it was if everyone could just see what was on the table. A bit more um, open communication. Yeah, like open communication. Transparent is the word I was looking for. Yeah, tr- okay. Yeah. A bit more transparency. It's, you're saying it seems like some things are hidden. Well, like I say, this is the first of maybe many that we'll have because you'll be at the races and we can see what's going on. And I think the more people talk about it, the more Brooke speaks out, and I'll get him on here as well. He's obviously inundated with uh, requests during this time. So... Yeah, I appreciate your thoughts, and I think the conversation has to kind of keep going. Yeah, yeah, and like, um, you know, we got so so many like, yeah, you know, the the next wave of riders is coming through, and um, I think with them they're bringing like a whole, you know, the the sport 
growing. You just look around, there's like so many more people on bikes. Um, and at the end of the day, it's just like maintaining the, you know, maintaining the core values of, I guess, downhill racing because the last thing we want is for it to just be a motorway where you can run a cable car because it's better for TV because, you know, people people want Val to Soul, but maybe it's harder to film, but we need to keep those courses. Absolutely. No, we don't want to lose the, the core of what Downhill is and what made it so great and, and all these things. So mm. speaking of that, um, I want to play a little game. You're speaking about the next riders. <laughs> um, if you yeah. can take a because you're talking about the next riders that are coming up and the type of skill sets they have. If you, if you were to take one skill from another rider, what would it be and why? Uh, I would take Finwell's scrub so that I could get one of the cool scrub photos at Leo Gang on the hip after the wall ride. Okay, so that's style. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. Okay. And then let's, let's, uh, let's test this out. Because so you like... No, because you go into your team's Dropbox on the Saturday and you're like, when you're on the bike, you feel like, I feel like I'm fully scrubbing. <laughs> and then I see the photos and I'm like barely turning my bar. And then you see the ones of like Finn and he's like, literally like his bar's lower than his back wheel. Yeah. And, I, him, him <laughs> and, I'm, and, like, and... I'm like, I'm like in my head, I'm like, it kind of feels like that, <laughs> but it sure as hell doesn't look like that. Feel is not real. <laughs> That's prime example. So, no, the um, feel is not real. If we were to build the ultimate rider, and you can only use a rider's name once, and there's five categories. So, fitness. Mud maze. <laughs> okay. Mental. Like mental toughness, mental ability. Game face. Uh i will probably go G. Atherton, eh? Because while he's not like your steadfast, like Bruni or Minar, um, but he's taken some massive hits and he always turns up. Yeah, he does, man. Uh, we're gonna have him like, on as well, so I'll speak to him about that. Yeah, he, yeah. Okay. he does not. Get, he does not get as much credit for being. A, he like he is such a gnarly dude. When you he think is about a badass, him. actually. Hey, isn't it? Now that he's like results oh, in the like, trip, but man, he's a badass. Like the rampage shirt. Like he'll like literally annihilate himself and then one run motor like win the race. Yeah. Yeah, gnarly guy, and he's Jump. got a pretty heavy. He's got a pretty heavy game face when it's race day. No, he does. No, he does. I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna dig into all that. So jumping. Uh, but if I could do, if I could do the the whip that Ollie Wilkins does in um, Death Grip on the trails. Oof. Yeah, that like upper one. He goes to live. Okay, so that's cool. So Ollie's jumping, touch and skill, cornering. Um, well, he like he doesn't have. Oh, no, definitely Sam Hill. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. And then I uh, was gonna. I was. I was gonna say Ratboy because like he doesn't have the best style in terms of cornering, but like he's an ridiculously good at cornering. No, it is Brendan. And I spoke about it. Like I think Brendan's great, and then he reminded me. Well, he thinks Josh is probably the best, but post Sam's crazy cornering. I'd say, yeah, probably Josh. 
but yeah, I mean, Sam mm. wins. And then technical ability, I guess that's rocks. And when it gets horrible. Probably someone like Remy Tyrion. Like he's, he is always going to be the guy who'll do a, like a pretty dicey gap and under some pretty technical conditions. Yeah, he's definitely an underrated rider for his skill. But then, like, so it's you know who's a na- really underrated gnarly guy is Mark Wallace. Yeah, I agree. Like, um, he he is always doing like pretty, uh, you know, creative gaps and stuff um, that always just fly under the radar. But when you're like trackside, you're like, whoa, he just jumped from there to there. So. <laughs> yeah, he's he's just like his riding does the talking, doesn't it? Because he's just not that yeah, outspoken man. or gnarly on the on the exterior, but his riding does. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So um, now, obviously, during this time, I mean, what's what keeps you busy? Maybe when you're not riding or an off season to switch off from bikes and kind of regain that motivation. You know, what what keeps you busy away from the bikes? I've been thinking about that, like. I was like talking to my dad and I was like, well, I guess all this is at least raised some thoughts. I was like, what what would I do if I like needed to, if I stopped mountain biking professionally like tomorrow? And I can't really answer that question, but, um, so I'm, I'm still, <laughs> I'm still on the drawing board with, uh, what my next move would be when mountain biking finishes, but at least this whole COVID, um, saga, <laughs> it's got me thinking about it, but I yeah, think I'll just try. I think I'll just try and make mountain biking last a bit longer. Yeah. Obviously, you pretend that you golf, golf, but you're obviously crap. We know that, we'll, <laughs> and you don't want to. You yeah. don't want to play me. You just want to talk about it. <laughs> oh, listen to it. You still, you can, still can't handle it. I'm a better golfer. <laughs> uh, you'll have to uh, Photoshop your handicap card and send it to me to prove that. Yeah, I don't count. I don't count score. I just put the ball in the hole. <laughs> there you go. I'm. Uh, I love surfing, and where I live, like where my parents live, I can surf heaps. Um, obviously, we haven't been allowed to, but we started. We're allowed to start surfing. Um, I think tomorrow. Uh, so I try and surf a bit. Um, I've been building a house, uh, or like I've got a bit of a housing project that has turned into a bit of a housing pain in the ass that I'm trying to finish. Um, but for the next wee while, I'm just, you know, like I'm going to, I'm just trying to stay healthy and relatively fit. But, uh, I think I've, I've got a good handle on things where like within a month I can kind of get pretty back in good, uh, race shape if I'm, if I've got a good starting point. Um, so I'm just kind of chilling, uh, riding for fun. I've been digging heaps of trails like full gromming out in the forest, drinking Monster Energy and just digging for like hours on end. But we've pretty much dug a full set of trails that in the, in the during the lockdown. What, dirt um, jumps or enduro? Yeah, like dirt. No, nah, like dirt jumps. Are you going to vlog about them? Nah, I was, we were like joking. Um, we were like, pretty sure our trails are way better than Matt Jones anyway. <laughs> 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 and like we haven't been vlogging them. Jeez, dude, you're but, uh, missing out. Well, the world is changing, so I think you're going to see more and more of that. But like, uh, when I, uh, I'm going to go to, I'm going to go back to Queenstown for the winter. Um, I like, I, I grew up when I grew up, well, growing up, I loved skiing and stuff. So, but I just don't really get to do it much now with chasing summers. So it'll be quite. I'm quite looking forward to 
just I'm gonna get I'll just get a part time job and stuff because I don't really like like if I'm not doing all that writing. Um, sometimes I just I'm like, well, what do I, you know? I don't really feel like I'm doing much, so I'll probably just get a part time job, maybe work twenty hours a week and do the rest just writing and activities, which which is a pretty good gig, I reckon. Keep showing the the listener how much work you put in, or you're not scared to put it put in the graft. Have you got some other advice for like an up and coming rider, or even someone that's trying to get the most most out of their riding? It's so cliche, but just like you get all these, just like have fun, enjoy it, because <laughs> yeah, like you get all these kids who are asking like how to what how get to, sponsored. Yeah, yeah, there's no, like, blueprint because you look at all the riders and, the, yes, there's the blueprint of, like, getting picked up by specialized gravity when you're 15 and go, getting taken the whole way through. Um, but there's no blueprint in terms of, like, like what there's success when it comes to racing. But, like, I could, you're just as successful if you're just out enjoying your riding whenever you're riding. Doesn't, there's no, like, doesn't have to be every day. Doesn't, it could be once a week, but... Like, if you finish the ride and you're like, yo, that was sick, then that's, like, just as big a success as winning the race, I reckon. Definitely. So just enjoy it. Yeah, some of the youngsters are kind of getting focused and training and coaches and structure so early. You're missing out on that time where you're super normally motivated to ride. Drives me nuts. You've got, like, you'll have, like, these, you know, 15-year-old kids who are shredders and maybe their parents are coming up and asking, like, what should they be doing in terms of training? And I'm like, they shouldn't be training. They should just be, like, riding hardtails, dirt jumping, skate park, you know, maximizing their whole skill set before you even think about, like, looking in for for a little, you know, 1% physical gain. You're going to be so quick down the track if you can ride trails and stuff. And, you know, if you're an all-round good rider – um, you'll get, you know, 20, 30% gains where you might only get 2% faster if you're <laughs> squatting 160 kilos at 12 years old. Yeah, I think just in the, just to simplify that, like I think skill acquisition's just easier and you get more of it when you're at a young age and you can always adapt and get better at training and also you get burnt out. Like you're going to train, if you, especially if you want to go pro, or GoPro, you're going to end up just training for the rest of your career. But if you don't have that baseline skill set, you're you're going to be behind the eight ball. Yeah, just you can train all you want when you need to, but if you did like, yeah, just shouldn't even be called training because like it's just just go ride your bike. Yeah, I think that's brilliant advice to the youngsters. Just have fun, ride your bike. It's like you look at like you look at all the UK guys, and they're like. You know, I think the French are really strong because they've got like a really good, you know, feeder series with their national series. They ride really good tracks and then they've got like, they've always got people to look up to. But then you've got the UK guys who don't necessarily have big hills and they grow, grow up riding hardtails or just doing push laps. Or you like have Bryson who just like hits one cutty right at the end of his driveway. And it's like that repetition of just sessioning all day which is what we used to do. We just go spot to spot and just ride all day. Um, it's that, it's like that, it's like, it's like that repetition that gets you like, that's what makes you a really good all round rider and it'll make you a really good racer as well. 
No, you're preaching, man. I love that. I, that's what I tell everyone. And, and I think we should end it just there for the youngsters. Over and over, push runs, go ride your bike, have fun. Just do the do the death do the death grip challenge. Like it's like go build a rut and see who can come in no breaks the fastest. And you'll have a crash, but it'll be nothing and you'll just like wash the front. But like <laughs> do it. It's, you know, it's so much fun. I still love doing it. Yeah, that's nice. Well, that that moves us on to let's do some listener questions. If you could ride for any other team on the circuit, where do you think you'd fit best? Uh, I don't think I'd fit in anywhere else, eh? <laughs> oh, that's a good answer. <laughs> nah, um, who would I who would I like to ride for? Um, shit, nah, I'm at, I'm at home right now. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, yeah, no, that's fine. Yeah. We've asked you, what do you do to switch off from bikes? Uh, here's a good one. Any near-death experiences on or off the bike? Um, I died. Well, I, I jumped into a pool when I was three years old when wind could swim and I couldn't swim and I, I drowned and had to uh, have my lungs, <laughs> like, I fully drowned and the, they had, I had to be resuscitated. Um, but I don't remember that. But that was probably the closest I've had to a near-death experience. That was from Teo, so I'm pretty sure he was uh, thinking of another story, but we might need to keep that. (laughs) We'll do that for the next bit of untold stories. And then someone's asking, when when are you and Needles having your match? So they've obviously seen the banter. Well, we can't during COVID, so maybe we'll do an online one. Needles keeps ghosting me on the golf course. Well... (laughs) It's not going to be a match, to be very fair. Yeah, but, you know, when I'm turning up week in, week out to play you and you won't even turn up, you know, people are starting to wonder, have you really got it? <laughs> have I really got it? Maybe we'll have a cyber match-off. Your, the, golf clubs, the golf clubs that you lent us um, very nearly killed someone walking their dog in Scotland, though. They're pretty dangerous. The clubs? Are they the clubs? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, is it the Indian or the Arab? I think it, no, it was definitely the Indian. <laughs> we just like smoked it at the uh, um, golf course and then there's this guy and it was a pretty clean hat. I can't remember who smoked it, but um, we're just like, that's going to get pretty close to that guy walking the dog. <laughs> and then it just like landed like literally by his foot. It was so close. Well, Eddie, uh, this conversation's been a bit like how you attack racing. I think it's a lot of playing playing hard, working hard, and I think there's been some gems in between a lot of those funny stories. So thanks for your time. I couldn't be more grateful for it. No, no worries. Thanks for having me. Um, you know, I, have to, I, I really struggled to fit you in, but somehow I made some space in my busy schedule. <laughs> no, thanks for that. Me as well. You know, I had to... Got a lot of these lined up, a lot of places to be, things to do, you know? Oh, it's literally not enough hours in the day at the moment. It's just all this COVID-19 stuff, it's whew, run off my feet. I look forward to speaking to you again. Maybe we can catch up after the first race, when and if it ever happens. So good luck for uh, yeah this uncertain time and then for your training when it kicks up again. Well, with all this extra time, I might be uh, spending a fair bit of it on the fairway, so you might need to watch out. All right, well, send me some videos. I'll help you this week. Thanks, mate, and have a good one.
Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that as much as I did. It is always a treat and a good time to catch up with Eddie Masters. Thanks so much for him for coming on. Guys, if you can subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever else you get those podcasts, give it a review, give it a share if you can. Send me a message, tell me what you liked, disliked, and I'll try and improve from there. Till next time, guys, stay well. <laughs>